0: Time for the Love, Sex, and Death, Valentine's Day Special. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? This is Death by DVD, and you're listening to the smooth sounds of Hank, the world's greatest I will be your host for this Valentine's Day special. That's right, it's Valentine's Day. The most romantic day of the year, or so I'm told. A day where you celebrate love, or candy, or candied love. I don't know. I have no idea. What What is Valentine's Day about? I mean, in essence, it's supposed to be about romanticism and love and all that jibber-jabber, but where'd it come from? I mean, there was this dude named St. Valentine who, on February 14th, I don't think he was a saint at the time. I think they only gave him the title after something happened to him on February 14th, 269 A.D. Got his head cut off. And then years and years and years and years later, we all celebrate with boxes of candy. So, I'm just here saying, at uh, the base of Valentine's Day, there's a little little bit of death. And isn't that a great subject matter? Not just death, but love and death, and sex and death. Because that's also associated with Valentine's Day, you know? fucking. So we've got sex, we've got love, and then we've got love and sex. WITH DEATH! Now we're cooking with something, right? We don't know if it's gas, but we're cooking with something. But I thought, you know, it's Valentine's Day, and these people deserve a treat. They deserve something romantic. Let's say you're not cuddled up with someone you're close with right now, enjoying the smooth sounds of my voice on Valentine's Day. Let's say you're all alone! Or let's say you're listening to this uh, in July of 2022, and it's not even near Valentine's Day. I want to deliver to you an uplifting story. Wait, hold on. Let me check what we picked. Oh, never mind. It's definitely not uplifting. I wanted to give a, a, a romantic story. I can get away with saying that. I can say it's romantic. And you know what? I'm not lying to you. I'm not lying directly to your ears. It is romantic. You know what? That's even part of the title. I think it's time. Let's say what it is. From West Germany, 1987. Necromantic. That's right. Gonna do a corpse-fucking movie for Valentine's Day. That's correct. That's what we're gonna do. But this movie's so much more than just a corpse-fucking movie. There's there's a lot more to it than that. But there is. there You, you will see it. You're gonna hear about it. You're gonna learn about it. Corpse-fucking. I'm gonna say it a lot. There's, there's so... Many more ways that I could say it. But I like that way, and that's what I'm going to stick to. Directed and co-written by Jörg Butgerit. The other writer is Franz Rodenkirchen. The movie is a cult classic. Everybody's heard about it. And if you haven't heard about it, and this is your introduction, oh my gosh, we're going to have some fun. Now, I want to throw it out there before we get too deep into the show with some trigger warnings, sexual assault, animals, uh, some animal death. Let's see what else we got here. You know what? Really, if you're—and I don't mean to say this—you know—as like a gatekeeper and in a a shitty way—if you're easily offended, you need to stay away from this type of movie. But seriously, if you're easily offended, please—I don't want emails about you didn't warn me that a fucking dog died in the show. And but I'm giving you your warning this time. So here you go, triggers. Sure, I left a bunch of stuff out, but let's just put a big old capital T for Trigger Warning Necromantic 1987. And the movie itself begins with a trigger warning, though. I mean, you you have words saying that this could be taken the wrong way and that you could be offended by this. So in 1987, everyone involved acknowledged that. But then again, the title of the movie is Necromantic, so I think, especially if uh, you know you read the, a brief synopsis of what this movie is about, that you can pretty much figure that you're gonna get into some weird and rough territory. But I digress, because yes, this is a horror movie. Uh, A horror movie in classification, but like I said, there's much more to it than that. And there is romance. I'm not pulling your leg. There is something to it, and you'll hear all about it. It's a movie that begins with urine and death. I know that sounds so appealing. and It's driven by this dreamlike score, but it's more of a fever dream than anything else. Heavily powered by synth and piano. Right at the beginning, the, uh, as I'm going to call it, art of death is displayed almost immediately and when we start getting to know our lead character, we find out that his entire world is in fact death. He uh, He's in love with death. And that's one of the romantic parts of the movie. And I guess that's where you get some of the mantic and the necromantic title. But we'll get there in a little while. So this is a very famous movie and it's been banned all over the world and It's still banned in a lot of places, but that's not the prime directive for the Valentine's Day special. We could get into uh, semantics and talk about how the movie was made, and trivia, and facts, and all the places that it was banned in. Or we could just talk about Necromantic, and that's what I would prefer to do, so that is what we are going to do. That's how we're going to spend Valentine's Day together we're going to talk about Corpse fucking. So let's talk about Love and Death. The urine-soaked first scene of this movie is actually a bit more disturbing than at first glance. When you very when you see it for the first time, the movie begins, the very first scene is a woman peeing in a field. And what you can't see is she's actually peeing on a dead pigeon. Just doesn't show up very well. It's poor lighting. Something uh, of note with this movie that we'll talk about as we we go through it is Very cheap budget, super, super independent, if you want to use that as uh, terms to help you understand. This is not a million-dollar movie by any means. But this is the very first act of desecration that we are exposed to. So the movie begins with death, and the movie begins with desecration, and the movie conveniently ends. And death. I don't know if it so much ends in desecration, but we'll get there when we get there. But I think it's important for what we are about to see that, you know, it's not just pissing in a field that she was pissing on an animal's corpse. Desecration, one way or another. Now, all this was shot on 16mm. The very beginning of the film, I believe, is all 16mm. And the rest is eight. Good old Super 8. Which explains as to why 90% of this movie is shot as close-ups. Because, you know, trying to do a wide shot on something like Super Eight's just... You can do it, but I I wouldn't. And York Bootgreet also didn't decide to do it. But it, it, it complements the movie. It gives it a flouted, touted, dreamlike French movie feeling, you know? So these people that we just witnessed woman peeing in the road, she gets into a vehicle, arguing with her husband about where they're going, and crash, wang, bang, boom, they're in a car accident. None of this really has anything to do with the movie, aside from helping us introduce our character, and while introducing him, giving us a, a, a pure and absolute look into his world and what his world revolves around which is death. These people are in a horrific car accident. They both die. And through these acts, we get introduced to our lead character. But, you know, I said something a couple seconds ago. This movie begins, and it ends with death. But that's not the horrifying part about any of this. Death is natural. It, it surrounds us. It's constant. It is a constant. It is completely unavoidable. There is no uncertainty about death. That's just not the horror aspect about this film. That's not what makes it scary. And it's not scary in the sense of, Oh! Boo! I scared you! Ah! It's scary in the sense of what is happening and what these people are doing. It's obviously exploitation because corpse-fucking. There is corpse-fucking. But death isn't the scary aspect of the movie. Death isn't the horror part of the movie. If anything, death falls into the love category. But unlike death, there is no certainty to love. Which I guess one could make the argument that love is not natural. But that someone is not me. So back to talking about death, our lead character, who I'm going to stop calling our lead character because he has a name, Robert Schmattake, played by Bernd Daktari Lorenz, who I'm just going to call Daktari. He works for a company called Joe's Street Cleaning Service, and what they do is they clean the streets of dead body and debris and things that happen in car wrecks. And this movie, as I mentioned, is from West Germany, so it takes place in Germany. And in Germany, they've got this thing called the Autobahn. And all the Autobahn is, is the highway that connects everything inside of the country. But one of the unique things about the Autobahn is it has no speed limits. And it doesn't really have a great deal of regulations for when it comes to driving. So there are a lot of accidents on the Autobahn. There's a lot of messes on the Autobahn. And at least in the 1980s, services like this existed to clean up that schmuck. Robert is a collector. He takes mementos of death home with him from work. Eyeballs. Hearts chunks of guts, brains, skulls, bones, you know, all the good stuff. And at the beginning of this movie, the car accident I referenced, you are exposed to gore right off the bat, and you get to see some pretty vulgar gore at that, you know, uh, the woman who was peeing in a field was cut in half and her guts are all hanging out. When Joe's street cleaning service arrives to clean up this wreck and we're introduced to Robert, he steals an eyeball from the car. This is where you start noticing that, you know, some of these things just... They look really gross, they're really ooey-gooey and creepy. Well, that's because most of the prompts are animal parts. Like I said, this movie was filmed on a very, very cheap budget, and it's expensive to create quality and good-looking gore, so the Jorg went to a slaughterhouse outside of Berlin and pretended to be a medical student, convinced these people to give him a surplus of eyeballs and guts and all sorts of horrific things that we will see throughout the movie. So that very first sequence, all the entrails that are hanging out there, that's cow guts. The eyeball, and man, eyeballs come into play a little bit later, also. That uh, Dactari, Robert Schmedicki. The character is Robert, the actor is Dactari. Sorry, I have a habit of going back and forth between names. But when your name is that cool, Dactari. How can you help but not want to call the guy that? You just, that's such an awesome name. First and only film appearance for Burned Dactari Lorenz, uh, has a couple directorial credits, but, you know, Necromanic is the big thing. But we don't know the character's name, we don't know anything about him, and all we see is that he pockets an eyeball. But as things progress, we are allowed to know that this is our, our lead character. There'll be another one, but this is our most important lead character who the story follows. And despite everyone in the movie being pretty awful and villains, you're never given that portrayal of them because you're watching them. It's not so much like you're rooting for them, but by no means are they villainized. You're just sort of seeing the story through someone else's eyes. Your own, uh, through the fourth wall, perhaps. Because that's how watching movies works. A little fun fact about the production. This is kind of gross. This movie was shot over the course of a few months, mostly on weekends. And one of the sets that is an apartment that we'll get to in a little bit Somebody was living in it, one of the... Somebody working on the production, I believe it was the cameraman, actually lived there. So you know that Robert is a collector. He's got all these awful body parts, and they're kept, presumably, where he lives, and that's his apartment. But in real life, all these prompts, which were actual, you know, guts and animal parts and hearts and eyes, couldn't really afford the actual stuff to keep specimens well in alcohol. I know it's something else other than alcohol, but you get the point. So a lot of the jars are just filled with water, and you've got lights constantly on, because shooting in Super 8, it's, it's just, you have to have really, really terrific light. So you've got these lights cooking, essentially boiling these organs in water over the period of two or three days for two or three months as they shot on the weekends. Gotta feel bad for the guy. You really gotta have sympathy for her, that guy, because it had to be offensively foul. But, you know, maybe that worked for the whole vibe and the whole production. You walk into this apartment, and you're gonna shoot these awful scenes. You're trying to get into character, and it actually smells like something's rotting and dying in it. I'm sure that was pleasant for the actors. And no, this is not a SAG after a movie, if you were asking yourself. <laughs>
1: I don't feel I needed to
0: add that in but you know there there you go if you needed that little bit of trivia not sag after. You know that might be one of the very first comparisons to uh, Toby Hooper's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre the fact that the lights did really cause a funk with some of that meat because everybody knows the story the dinner scene. The, toward the end of Texas Chainsaw. All that meat and the head cheese had been sitting out all day and all night in the Texas heat and was just rotting and pulsating with nastiness. Necromantic itself has a great deal of similarities. The soundtrack, when they were getting that composed, Jorg and Franz made a copy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for uh, the three different people that composed for this. One of them, they had given a copy of that film to and said, you know, give it, give it that eerie sound, make it sound like that, which... I made a note of how bizarre the soundtrack was at the beginning of this show. The score is really out there. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of funny, you know, knowing that fact and being able to to share that. I took it from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was all right, because it's really uh, uh, just constant because some of it wasn't shot with any sound pulsating beat just this scent that just drives into your brain like a nail and then when that's not blaring it's piano music kind of romanticy piano music necromantic piano music if you will all right back to the movie so robert goes home from work and this is where we're introduced to betty played by beatrice manowski betty is robert's girlfriend and this is where some very strange character development starts coming into play here uh, you see that they're a happy couple in appearance you know on the outside Betty is incredibly excited to see what Robert's brought home from work. Uh, they, they relish in their collection. He's got jars upon jars of specimens with hearts and eyes and all these presumably human organs. Skulls are all over the place. pornographies all over the wall. They've built themselves an erotic ossory, a safe haven from the world of normies. And it's funny, this movie became so popular within you know the horror subculture, the gossip culture, metal, whatever, just subculture in general. Because at this point, there are kind of jabs at subculture in general. They start making fun of goths. Betty goes and takes a bath with blood from one of the specimen jars, but she's wearing sunglasses the entire time. And none of this has anything to do with the story. None of this actually does anything for the story. Some of it's really cool shots. And, uh, you know, mind you, it's Super 8. But there are some articulate shots in this movie. I wouldn't say any of the equipment that was used is sophisticated, nor is it preferable for making a feature-length movie, which this runs a little bit short, 70-something minutes. It's not 90. But still, we're going to call it a feature. It's a feature. But using what they had, there is articulation. There is some beauty to how these shots were set up. And again, I mentioned a lot of the movie is driven from close-ups, and that's just kind of a necessity of using a Super 8. But it helps move and drive the story, and it almost gives this appearance of, of, like, especially when it's Betty, pure vanity, because most of the characters' actions are... In vain and vanity-driven. Not necessarily, you know, I've got to look beautiful, but self-vanity something inside of her. We'll get, get there. there when we get there. That's a little bit later on in the story, though. You get to see here the kink ass bed. This is one of my favorite things about the production of this movie. Uh, this this set design is amazing. They've got this bed, and this is another reference to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's decked out and bones, again, all presumably human, giant pieces of fencing, like mesh fencing, like metal meshed fencing, chain-link fencing, barbed wire, bones all over the bedroom, a picture of Charles Manson's mugshot, and erotic ossory. I like that. I'm going to stick with that. That was a good one. And if you weren't offended by somebody stealing an eyeball or the gore at the very beginning of the movie, this is usually the first place where people either turn the movie off or they're just disgusted by it and the negativity starts to flow. While relaxing and watching TV... Robert has a, a fantasy, He's watching the news or some German educational program, and he starts having this reflection. You're not really certain in the movie what's going on, but what you are shown is footage of a rabbit being killed and skinned. It was shot for the movie, but I'm certain that the rabbit was eaten afterwards. Rabbit in general is a pretty big German food. At this point, it's obvious that we're borrowing from something like Bragero Diodato's Cannibal Holocaust. This is some of the more explicit uh, exploitation, I guess I should say, driven aspects of the movie. But what it stands for is not just a daydream. It's not like this perverse idea of, ah, I'm just going to dream about this rabbit, because at the same time, you're getting this footage of this rabbit being killed and skinned. And it's very grisly, but I, I don't want to say it's humane by any means necessary, but It's how people kill and skin rabbits when they're going to eat them. Not necessary, and I'm not defending it. It's not even really necessary to the story because it's never made clear why he's having this fantasy. In the midst of doing it, he is also fantasizing about an autopsy and he's removing these big chunks of fat from a cadaver's stomach, and that's flashing back and forth with the rabbit sequence. But what it's supposed to be doing is showing you that he's having this reflective thought of when he was a child, that his father killed his pet rabbit in front of him. None of this is said. Nobody says this. It's not made clear. And the only reason I'm bringing it up and I know about it is because I spent a couple minutes Googling the movie, maybe. But no, sarcasm aside, that's uh, from the director's mouth. And that does really help with the sequence, because formidably, until I learned that fact, it was like, what the fuck? I mean, you're just doing this to be shocking. And if there's anything I hate, it's violence for the sake of violence, yet alone just a random insert of a rabbit being killed and skinned. In Cannibal Holocaust, obviously it was for shock, but you've always got that defense. They used the turtle to feed people, so in the defense of Necromanic, somebody ate that rabbit. They didn't just kill it for funsies, they killed it for hunger. Zs, hung, yeah, whatever. Alright, moving on, rabbit's dead. While we're talking about things that Yorg has said, let's bring this one up. Just because things like this are in the movie, just because you see things like this, that doesn't mean he or anyone else involved in making this movie's into that. These guys aren't sitting around fetishizing animal deaths. They're not whacking their poles to it. But it's something that visually was was represented, obviously, to tell parts of the story. And it's just unfortunate that these parts of the story weren't made a little bit more clear. But two, I mean, a lot of it is presumptuous. That's not a fucking word at all. Presumptuous-tiv? Oh my god, what am I? I have no idea what even word I'm trying to say. Holy shit. Uh, <laughs> it's presumptuous tiv Alright. You end up presuming a lot when it comes to what you are seeing, especially with dream sequences, because there's a handful of them in necromantic. But I explained that one for you. You get that one. Everybody gets one and that was it. And when I mention that he's like pulling fat in this like little daydream out of the body, they managed to find stuff that really looks like human fat and it's it's just sickening. It's very brief, but I'm pretty sure it's scrambled eggs. That was used a lot throughout this movie. Scrambled eggs and food coloring and everything's gooey. Oh, it's it's so gooey. Like more than alien, more than the fly. It's it's so ridiculous. Re- Ridiculously slimy and slick and It's kind of gross now we transition from grotesque scrambled egg lumps of fat Autopsy fantasies as well as rabbit murder memories to what at first appears to be a light-hearted scene You got a guy picking apples and another guy sitting in his garden enjoying a beer, but absolutely nothing and this film is lighthearted. Actually, this might be the only appearance of something even lighthearted because the beginning of the movie, it's not even like just a couple driving down the road and they're traveling, da-da-da-da-da, somebody pissing in a field on a dead animal, and then they begin arguing immediately. So the beginning is hectic. You get into this point, and you're like, wow, the sun is shining, somebody's picking apples, this guy is just sitting in his garden, enjoying himself, having a moment is this the wrong movie is something wrong but this is a very important sequence we establish our second male lead i mentioned that there was another important character robert is the the most important out of all of them but the apple picking man johnny appleseed i'm gonna call is a very key aspect to this entire movie because you can't have a corpse-fucking movie without a corpse to fuck everything seems so pleasant but like i said it who the apple picker is good old johnny appleseed that's what's important here this briefly pleasant moment Turns horrific as our apple picker, good old Johnny Appleseed, he has an accident. And the beer-drinking man who has caused this accident, he tries to hide what happens. Now this Gomery's sitting in his yard and he's got a rifle and he's just trying to pick off birds who innocently fly by while he drinks. Fires a shot off and it ends up slapping Johnny Appleseed right into the neck, who falls off his ladder and, uh, he fucking dies. It kills him. You know, ba-dum-bum. He's dead! I don't know why I... I... Did the bedump bump there, but whatever. Moving on. Because nothing nice ever happens at all anywhere, instead of owning up to this or trying to call the police and explaining that it was an accident, the beer drinking man takes Johnny Appleseed and he dumps him in a little pond. And he hightails it the fuck out of there. Sometime later, a long time later, the body is found incredibly decomposed and Who has to come pick the body up? The body removal service. And Robert's working that day. Now, the man we once saw is absolutely no more. He's been rotting in this pond for quite some time, and his decomposition is severe. Though, if Tom Savini was here, he would be the first to point out, you know what, that's not what a body in water would look like. And it's not. The corpse would be all bloated, and the skin would be, uh, you know, detaching from the muscle. Be really mucusy and snotty really wouldn't be able to do a lot with it. So what you have here is something that really, the movie really is based on, the corpse. And he kind of looks like a mummy, his skin's a little dried and stuck to the body, but it doesn't matter. The whole movie really bears on this because before they even started production, before they even started writing, they made the skeleton, they made the corpse because if they couldn't get that right, they knew there would be no point in even trying to to make a a feature-length film. Gotta have the corpse. So, you know what? It's not accurate, but it's still pretty cool. It was a skeleton from a medical college, and what they did was uh, take women's pantyhose and laid it over top of the bones and soaked them and then added liquid latex to that and painted it, made it mucky, made it gross, made it look sticky. It works. So given the very first chance that he has, Robert steals the corpse, of course. I mean, this is not only the ultimate piece for his collection, the crown jewel of his collection, but this is a wonderful gift for Betty. She's going to be incredibly happy with it. And he's going to get pleasure from her being happy. I mean, this is way better than a box of chocolates. An actual boner fide corpse. We know now things are really going to get weird. Or weirder. Piany music fills the scene. Well, actually, it's piano music. It's not piano music. There's a big difference between the two. Like, this is piano music. And this is piano music. Love is in the air. But it's not raw fucking. Like, this is really, I guess, where the film gets a lot of notoriety. A lot of people go out of their way to see this scene. Um, A lot of imagery from the scene was used for poster art. It's a lot of what some of the most identifiable aspects of this movie are. But it's not handled like raw fucking. It's not gonzo porn at all. It's a strange romantic sequence between the three. Betty, Robert, and the corpse. It's passionate and normal to them. Shocking and horrific to us. But death is their love language. Death and sex is their love language. God, it's so slimy. It's so, 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 so slimy. Corpses just covered with goo, and they're romping and rolling around with it. Said a little while ago that there was uh, some more eyeballs that came into play. Oh, this is just so gross. I told you. I told you that they're cow eyes. You've got this scene, man. Dactari Robert, he just goes to town and is sucking the eyeball in and out of the eye socket and just spitting it back in there and tonguing it and there's goo all over the place and oh, good googly moogly, it's absolutely horrific. The love is the more horrifying part of this movie than anything else. The death, the sex, the the sin, the depravity, none of that's really that scary because what you are shown with these characters is that it's normal to them. This whole lovemaking scene... This is normalcy to them. There's nothing absurd or unusual about it. It's like they managed to get some ecstasy. That's what the corpse is. It's like an aphrodisiac. They finally are happy with one another. The cloud, the constant cloud and draping certainty of death, has finally lifted over them as they get to embrace one another with death itself and make love with the corpse. They covered honey all over the corpse to make it more lickable, so that even... Gives a better example of how sticky and gooey this is. They've just got honey all over themselves, and it's dripping off their mouth, and it's dripping off the, the corpse. Oh, man. Many people think that the, uh, the corpse cock, the penis that they fashion for the corpse, they think it's either a metal pipe or a, a chair leg. It's actually a broom handle. They cut off a broom handle, and they give the corpse a penis. That's a good fact, the more you know there. But it's a real, genuine, erotic, necrotic Threesome. It's all passion. But if it had just been like rough sex, there wouldn't have been anything horrifying for us as the audience. Because, like I said, what really makes this scary is the normalcy. How 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 just okay everything is for Betty and Robert, and that yeah we're just gonna fuck this corpse and have snacks and everything's gonna be okay. The fact that it's sweet sweet lovemaking. That's really what makes it disturbing. Just hardcore sex would have just been shock for the sake of shock. There would have been nothing. There would have been nothing lingering. There would have been nothing to make you kind of wonder and think about these people and question really, God, like, why is this happening? Why are these people that way? To Robert and Betty, what they're doing is completely reasonable and normal. After this, the corpse is proudly displayed on the wall like art. Ooey gooey art because it's starting to decompose and drip all over the place. And imagine the stink. Good God. But you know what? Almost all the scenes in the movie, and you'll you'll start really noticing at this point, all of them are like absolute transitions between life and death. For example, as Betty and Robert eat after their threesome from beyond the grave, we have these cutaway scenes to the corpse decomposing on the wall. Life and death. They're sitting and enjoying each other's company and eating this big grotesque slab of meat, and then we cut right to this corpse slowly dying its second death. After all this happiness if you could call it that, Robert returns to work to find out that he has been fired. And he's been fired for genuinely being a weird fuck. One of the guys he works with has complained about him nonstop to the boss. He's not really even doing his job. He shows up and he's mopey, and the guys see him being a creep. He doesn't change after work. They've got these white coveralls that they wear to you know, keep the blood and guts and gore off of you. He wears them home, or he'll store them in his locker to take home later as souvenirs. And he's stealing body parts! I mean, you can't be that good at it. The other guys probably have seen this. So the body has disappeared, he shows up late for work, and his co-worker has just had enough with him. They take him up to the boss, he calls him an incompetent bastard. He has a little bit of a chat with the fella and they let him go. We do not need your services anymore. You weird fuck, get out. Which this is going to throw a big wrench into the machine of love and death for Robert and Betty. While all of this is happening, Betty's at home reading poetry to the corpse and somehow getting the corpse to eat her out. It's a very strange scene, but it is very beautiful. It's shot almost kaleidoscopically, kind of like Kenneth Anger. There's an Out There reference. It's definitely, this whole whole scene has a really cool Ken Anger vibe to it, but it is lovely. I mean, it's a very sensual, romantic sequence with a rotting and decomposing corpse, but nonetheless, the way it was handled and the way it was shot, it's tasteful for me. That's what this humble critic has to say. Yeah, the corpse-fucking-scene is tasteful. But really, I mean, if you were watching some regular movie... Like, what's that one where Viggo Mortensen goes fucking down on T.A. Is it T.A. Is Is it her? It's a David Cronenberg movie. A history of violence. Jesus Christ, that's one hell of a graphic scene. But there's no fucking difference between that and what you see in Necromantic. Except one is Viggo Mortensen and the other one's a corpse. I hear you. I understand. I'm acknowledging. I hear it. You don't even have to say it to me. I'm gonna die on this hill, though. Weird one to die on, but I'm gonna take it. It is a very well-handled corpse-love scene. Yeah, I don't like the way that sounds. Corpse-fucking. It's a very well-handled corpse-fucking scene. See, that sounds better. There's fluency to that. And it's crude, and I like it. But now, certainly, Robert can't add anything to his and Betty's collection. can't bring her home any more tokens of appreciation. He can't show her love anymore. He can't show her love with death anymore. That's the better way to say it. Betty's love of death is different than Robert's. Almost like the idea of death, the, the, the embodiment of death, is Robert's love. And Betty's is the physical flesh, the cold, cold flesh, and the artifacts, the memento mori. She's maybe really the collector, and Robert is the the romantic. Robert procures the collection because of his love of death, but his love of Betty at the same time. Or his love of the idea of Betty. Robert comes home, and you get to see how Betty really feels about him. This is what I was referencing a while back with the vanity of the character. She's not, like, obsessed with her image, but she's obsessed, possibly, with the vanity of the corpse and how these things are going to last. You know, everything that he's brought her home is going to rot and going to decompose, and now that he can't do that for her anymore, he really has no worth. He really has no use, because her love was in the flesh of the dead. Her love was in the objects. Her love was in surrounding herself with this rotting, putrefying flesh. It's the only thing that gave her pleasure. It was just the idea that Robert could get it for her is why she was tolerating him. And she lets him know, you know, he's spineless and that he's nothing and he's just some weirdo. But she's the one fucking herself with a broomstick on top of her rotting corpse. So very little room to be calling anybody a weirdo in this situation. And now we also not only know how Betty really feels, but we know what she feels about the dead, or what her love of the dead is. The corpse is rotting, and it doesn't have much time left, and now that Robert can't procure her anything else, any more dead to love, he's simply just as useless. Robert leaves and comes back home when finds that she has left. She leaves him a note saying that she took our friend as a final gift from Rob. So how does he handle it? How does he handle losing his girlfriend and losing his trophy he kills her cat like a fucking psycho which you'd think at this point of the movie you would be like whoa what do you expect but it's still shocking now let's take a moment to discuss this cat death scene because earlier in the movie we had actual animal violence the rabbits real, just like the many rumors that they used an actual dead body in the movie many people will claim and say they used a real cat just like that movie bad boy Bubby the difference is there is a real cat in this movie when it dies in the film the real cat doesn't die. In Bad Boy Bubby, it was just a dead cat. It was already dead in the first place. It's an interesting movie and a weird fucking segue. But hey, maybe someday I can sit down and talk about that Australian classic. Very misleading film, also something like Necromantic. It's got a cult following, but for all the wrong reasons. And then you sit down and you watch it, and it's like, this isn't anything like people told me it was going to be. This is totally a different direction. So what you've got here is uh, a a cat, and... Spoiler alert, he puts the cat in a bag and he slams the bag all around the room, slams it against the wall, slams it against a really cool bed. It's not actually the cat, it's some red food coloring in a bag, they squish it against the wall. No cats were harmed in the making of Necromanic. But the scene serves a point, I mean, there is something to this. We get to see how he handles emotion, or how he isn't handling emotion. And, and again, here we get transitions between life and death, as Rob's standing absolutely heartbroken, looking to where the corpse used to be hanging on the wall, and we flash back and forth with these cutaways to the corpse, you know, when it was there, dripping in happier times, while they ate weird slabs of meat in the kitchen, and then back to him being devastatingly alone. Life and death, life and death, life and death, life and death, life and death. So like Betty did earlier in the film... Rob jumps into the bath, and it's a very stoic scene of him holding himself underwater, and he just slowly rises and doesn't take this giant gulping breath, almost like, to me, that he's got this humble resignation of life. And the dead cat is hanging over the bathtub, and he's kind of longingly staring at it. And he kind of breaks down at this point and disembowels the cat and takes a bath with its guts and its blood, again chunky scrambled eggs were used with food coloring. Uh, and I think it's sort of like the, the food paint that you use on cakes and stuff like that. They, if I remember correctly, used strawberry colored for the blood. It's just chunky and gooey, and it's it's very disturbing. It's just this guy kind of manically breaking down in the bathtub, rolling around with a chunky dead cat. And it's very 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 evident. It's very obvious. It's not a very well done cat dummy. It's... It's like a lump of potatoes with rabbit fur glued onto it. So, I mean, you get the horrific nature of what's happening in this sequence, but I think upon examining it for yourself, you can see that it's not an actual cat. And I think maybe we can move on from this point. And, you know, I'm not defending anything here. This sequence actually shows something. This actually has something to do with the story. The whole rabbit thing, I think it could have been omitted. I think... What it needed was uh, some storytelling behind that to actually show into the narrative that it's a dream Robert's having that his father killed his pet rabbit when he was a child in front of him and made him watch it, and that he has this reflection. Because the rabbit thing comes back later, so it is significant. You just don't get a developed amount of significance with that sequence. Strawberry dyed cat-gut scrambled eggs. Mmm, just like Mom used to make. So now, uh, freshly bathed in cat guts and his own sick depravity, Robert decides that he needs to get out on the town. He needs to go out and relax. Goes to the cinema, which, hey, I can relate to. Who doesn't want to go to the fucking movies right now? I'd love to be able to go to the movies. But I don't bathe in cat guts anymore. This is all really drawn out. And, uh, you know, I will say, I guess, as a complaint... Not really, I'm just making an observation here. There are a lot of sequences that are drawn out. The apple picking sequence, it's like 10 minutes of this guy picking apples before something happens. And again, you've got that synth soundtrack just... do 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 doo 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 Whole time. It's playing the whole time. Uh, there's like one or two sequences. We're actually getting up to a really cool scene that doesn't have heavy soundtrack in it, but there's only maybe one or two that isn't driven by, you know, bon, 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 but we see a lot of unnecessary stuff here. I'm buying a ticket, standing in line to get a beer. You go into the movie, and it's a, it's a slasher picture. And what's unique about this sequence is no one's really affected by it. You've got graphic violence and a rape going on on screen, and everyone's smoking cigarettes, and they're eating, and they're drinking, and they don't really care. whole statement to have at hand here is the, the, the lackadaisical care people have even toward violence on screen. And you take into note... Robert's reaction to this, he's bored, it's not real, you know, it's like, you know, it's like a sex addict watching porn, it's not gonna do anything for them, they gotta have the real thing, he's already experienced the real thing, he already knows the passion of love and death, he already knows the sin of necrophilia, watching this at the cinema does nothing for him. This is where things are about to get weird, well you know what, I think I already said that, so this is where things are about to get weirder. double weird, weird times two, weird squared. All right, that's enough. So the movie's boring, Robert. There's nothing resonating. He's filled with loneliness. He, uh, he's filled with desire. He's hurt. He's heartbroken. He's confused. And all this guy's world is is death. He wakes up. He's in this apartment, this erotic ossory, surrounded completely by death. He goes to work. That's all it is. Death. Comes home. Erotic death. And now it's just broken and empty. Sure, he still has his hearts in a jar and eyeballs and all that stuff. He's got a dead cat he can go home to. But his whole reason for doing this is gone. Life is miserable now. He has no direction. Now that Betty's gone, he has none at all. Inside, he, he, he doesn't know what to do. He did everything for her, which let his passion of love and death exist, while Betty being happy brought him joy. Now that she's gone, death really is all that's left. Death is certain, and that's a fact. So he begins to self-destruct. Booze and pills, you know, the, the normal route one takes to self-destruct. So loaded with no care for his life or anyone else's, he dreams of himself in a body bag, dead, but still alive. His face rotting, skull exposed, and he's in the middle of a field. This woman brings him a box with a rotted head inside of it. What does it mean? Mm, Nothing. (laughs) I mean, being honest with you here, this, this sequence doesn't really mean anything. They play catch with the head. It's it's a really weird dream sequence. I mean, it's Rob's dream, so what we're establishing here again and furthermore is that, you know, this guy has... He's got problems. He's got a lot of problems, and you can look into it even deeper if you want to, that he's dead but still alive, dead inside, and doesn't know what to do to fulfill his passions, and this maiden brings him this head representative of maybe the future or or where he needs to go with things and then he finally feels joy frolicking with it in the field. That's a lot though. I mean, that's a fucking lot to look into. <laughs> and it's a, again, it's one of those like wandery dream sequences that lasts for a long time, a little bit of filler. It is a little bit of filler. But it, for the entirety of the story and the plot, this really doesn't it doesn't hold any importance to what's going to happen. It's just there, but it is cool. It does look cool. It again is one of those sequences that I uh, would deem articulate I like it. I, I like watching the dream sequences. This is one of my favorite ones. Yorg specifically didn't like the makeup that uh, was used for this scene. Daktari did his own makeup, but I think it kind of works. I think it looks all right, and there are so many different ways you can see this movie. I mean, back in the day, you had VHS boots that looked just ridiculously awful. You have a 35mm print, and that's the one that was kind of blown up, and they, they, they toured with, because this movie never got released. This wasn't uh, in thousands and thousands of theaters. They had uh, prints of this, they you know, ended up blowing it up, and they traveled around for quite some time to get it shown, and, and, and that's how it became a cult classic. That's how people ended up seeing it. Now, um, I don't know how many different versions there are, but specifically through cult epics, there is a terrific Blu-ray of Necromantic 1 and 2 that is really terrific to watch. Looks great, really clean, fun, You end up seeing a lot of detail you didn't previously see, like the pigeon that gets pissed on at the beginning of the movie. Alright, okay. Back to the movie. Not like we really got off subject, but... So if you want this dream sequence to have some sort of deeper meaning, uh, it's just establishing and exposing once more that Rob is... He's kinda fucked in the head. Kinda has problems. So he's all fucked up and he's self-destructing. Everything is miserable. Life has no valid point for him anymore. All he knows is death. Death? And desire, because he's gotta fill the flesh void. At this point, Rob goes out looking for sex. He finds a suitable sex worker. But there's a problem. Just like everything in this movie, there's a problem. You can't even go out into your own garden and pick apples without some asshole accidentally shooting you. And then you don't even get a proper burial. You get thrown into a pond where people later find you and fuck you. There is always a problem. And can we guess what it is? I think we all can collectively put our heads together. She has a pulse, she's warm, the sex worker, she's alive. They go to the cemetery for a little graveyard bang bang, hoping that this will serve as some stimulation for Robert, but he just can't seem to get his jimmy thick. And the poor sex worker ends up laughing at Robert's plight, and as we saw with that poor fucking cat, we know that Robert cannot handle his emotions very well, so he strangles her. But there is a silver lining to all of this, because now Robert can get rock hard. He is ready. To fuck. Yeah, I guess that's uh, it's a bad use of the term silver lining, I'll be honest with you there. But it, it, it works for Robert. I mean, and he, he commences to get down. He he commences to boogie, oogie, oogie, and fuck that corpse in the cemetery. And we know this is wrong. We, we, the audience, we know this is wrong. You're not, again, and I've brought this up before, you're never shown any villainization of these characters. You're never shown that, uh, you know, this is bad. You're just shown the journey. You're seeing what has happened to him. You're seeing as he continues to break down and as he loses his touch with the natural side of life and just starts focusing more and more on death, what happens to him, that he doesn't value anything anymore. He doesn't even understand his own feelings, that it's just a matter of a, you know more of a primordial thing. I've got to find pleasure somehow. You know, he's drinking that doesn't work, he's using drugs that doesn't work, he's gonna fuck, he's gonna do anything possible to fill the void, but there is only one thing that is his true love, and that's the it's death. His only desire, his only passion, his only hopes, his only dreams, they are death. And that's the romantic aspect of this, and you start to realize, and you move... ...into this part of the story, and this is really where it becomes a romance. This is why it's suitable and perfect for fucking Valentine's Day, because it 100% is a romance. But a little sneaky has been pulled on you. It's not about the romance between Robert and Betty. What happened between them is very important, but the romance is between Robert and death itself. The natural aspects of self, and the sex and death aspects of things. And really, when it comes to the human race, every single one of us as a society, as a people... There is nothing more that we care about than sex and death. That's just how it is. Unfortunately, you'd hope it would be love and death, because love can be so much more. There is so much more to love than anything sexual. In fact, sex doesn't really even have anything to do with love. Now, it can. It totally can. But that could take us back to that whole thing of, is love natural? And that's not what we're talking about. It's all about death tonight, baby. And that's all that Robert cares about. That's what we can finally see as he is getting it on with this sex worker's dead body on top of a grave. And now we move into a fan favorite scene. Everybody loves this scene. The poor groundskeeper the next morning comes and he finds Rob with the body cuddling her in the graveyard. So, of course, Rob takes a moment to think about the situation and does the suitable thing. And to him, the suitable thing was grabbing a shovel and cutting off the groundskeeper's head. Scene is really great. He cuts off the top of his head with a shovel and blood squirts out as the guy's bumbling around trying to feel the top of his head and then his body falls over and it's kicking and convulsing and squirting blood. Super cheesy. Like early Peter Jackson-style cheesy, and I love it. It gets, it's, I hate using this term because it's really not what I, I mean, but it's a little light-hearted. Everything else has been really dreary. Everything has been hyper-focused on death and the romantic aspects of their relationship and how depressing everything is and and just how reality is depressing in general, then you've got kind of this slap-happy death sequence where it's like, I wasn't really ready to have some sort of fun here. You know, you don't really expect something like that to happen from what you just saw, what you've just succumbed to, this really dark scene of him killing the sex worker and fucking her corpse and then, wham, cuts the top of somebody's head off and it's a little slapsticky. You know, I just said that it's Peter Jackson y, but, you know, also to just give you a vibe of how. The scene translates and feels. It's a little bit like Evil Dead 2. And it really is something completely different from the pacing and what we've been exposed to with uh you know the first half of the film. And we're moving now into the the bitter end. So you're really taken by surprise when the gears change on you. But with this, Robert boots goots on out of there. So that makes two victims for him, three if you count the cat. At this point, Rob has a moment of reflection, revealing what he needs to do to be happy, what must be done to be happy and to feel and, and to feel true love to. To acknowledge true love. He has this moment with nature connecting with it, and this caterpillar that crawls upon his hand, and he realizes, perhaps, in my opinion, how natural death is, and the nature of love itself, the naturality of love and death. He comes to term, you could say, with, with the conflicting feelings that he has been shown to be struggling with throughout the entire movie, the duality of love and death, and how he is weighing these. He has this moment in this field, and you've got these cutaways of him happily and joyously running through the field as he was, a very similar to the dream sequence when he was dead but still alive, playing volleyball with a head. He's finally realized the the perfect truth. He has finally serendipitously felt the warmth of, of love completely envelop him. He knows what has to be done to fix and to right all the wrongs, but he also knows... Acceptance. He he has come across his true self, and he is happy about it. He is finally able to realize who he is and what he is, and he knows exactly what to do about it to make himself happy. Something most people can't ever figure out. Something most people can never, ever do. And yes, I'm putting an uplifting spin on Necromantic. That's exactly what I'm doing. Because that's how I take it. I think if you can move across from the doom and gloom, and the corpse fucking, and the murdering, and, you know strangling a sex worker and cutting somebody's head off, putting the cat in the back, all that. Yes, it's very, very awful, but that's just how we we saw this. This is how this dream, this is how this message was composed and given to us. But at its core, all these horror hounds and these cult horror fans and everyone that's gone out of their way to see this movie because it's got ooey-gooey, greasy corpse fucking in it, you got tricked into watching an art film about romance. Nelson Muntz, ha ha. Ha! <laughs> Robert goes home, and I, I really like this scene. He assembles a crucifix. He's got the silver crucifix where the where Christ had been taken off of it, and he's got the, the little tiny nails and a hammer, and he starts piecing it all back together. And it shows us here what Rob has decided. I think if you didn't get a clear picture of it in that moment where he connects with nature, you certainly get it here, that he has decided that he is going to be a martyr of love. Uh, a martyr of love and death. He totally is filled with warmth. He is ecstatic. And now, for the big climax. Literally, he grabs a butcher's knife from his collection and he crawls into bed. He's writhing back and forth, can't come to terms with stabbing himself or what he's going to do. He's unable to commit the deed. He's got to feel something. He's got to have one last moment of, of love and death. The sensual aspect of everything he's ever cared about, everything inside of his heart, all these things coming together in one perfect moment. He's got to feel the high one last time. So he whips his dick out, and that's enough for him to realize, you know, this is all sex and death. That's all it was. That's all it ever was. And he plunges the knife deep down inside of his own gut, committing a form of uh, erotic seppuku. And at this point, he begins squirting fountains of man all over the room. Everything is perfect this last moment. Everything is okay. And then, rich red blood starts squirting as he cherishes these final moments, as he cherishes love and death. As he dies, Robert returns to the dream of the rabbit from his childhood. How poetic. Meanwhile, it cuts to him coming gallons of blood, but the dream is in reverse, as if his actions, uh, his embrace of death, It has erased everything, it's reversed everything, that he is finally getting over all of this trauma. He's finally getting a release from all of the pain and suffering and woe in his life and this one horrific thing that has haunted him throughout his entirety, this memory of his father killing the rabbit, it's now in reverse because everything is okay. He finally understands love, and it's all because of death. Everything is happy now, like that buzzcock song. So it's all natural. It's life and death and love. And I guess you could take a message from that and say, it's really embracing what you love. What did Bukowski say? Find what you love and let it kill you. But though literally, that's necromanic. That's that's the whole movie. You could have just... Shit, I could have just said that at the beginning of the show and gone, that's necromanic. see me next week. Um, Find what you love and let it kill you. But don't literally, like... Find what you love and let it kill you. Like, don't whip out, you know, like, your metaphorical cock and stab yourself at all or, or, you know. Yeah, maybe that wasn't the best way of saying things. Ugh. You gotta explain everything around here, I know. But just, just try to be clear. But really, you can take that from the end of this film. You can give it some Hallmark movie twist that it really is learning the true acceptance of yourself. And you're just given a very hideous way of seeing it in this film. But it is nothing more than art. It is nothing more than a romantic picture. It's masquerading as a horror film. It's masquerading as an exploitation film. And it it certainly has those examples. I mean, there are great deals of similarities between Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You can see that it's driven with exploitation. Obviously, like the rabbit skinning and the death of the cat. And even the murders themselves. The corpse-fucking. All of that is exploitation, but all of it also is used as very clever plot devices. Very crude, but very clever plot devices. And that's something, I guess, that could be said about all of Necromantic is, yes, it's crudely assembled, it's crudely shot, it's crudely acted. Get fucking past it. Look at what it has to offer aside from some pretty interesting sequences of gore or corpse fucking. I mean, if that's literally your sole interest of watching the movie... When you finish it, fucking call a therapist also at the same time. Because there is no glorifying of necrophilia in this movie. There's no glorifying of the murders either. I keep stressing it and I keep bringing it up. But what we're shown with the characters is just their story. We're not given any villainization. We're not given a who's wrong or who's right or what is wrong or what is right. I think genuinely and generally it should be understood. You know, killing people, fucking corpses, stealing body parts, killing animals. That's um not not good normal behavior not all right or acceptable behavior, you're watching something. You're watching something that had a point and a message, and when you look at it and you examine it, I think it's really lovely. I think it's really pretty. I think Necromantic is a pretty movie. It's extreme, violent, it's different, uh, and really no matter what you're into, if you're just into horror movies, if you're into gore movies, if you're into foreign films, romance films, it's different. It's no matter what you are, is your norm, no matter what you're used to watching, necromantic is, is different than what you've seen before. But the film ends with a flash of life and death once more. We get a shot of Robert Schmadai's grave, very humble with a wooden cross, and then a shot of a shovel entering the dirt and a woman's foot. The whole thing repeats itself. The cycle of love and death will begin again. sha na 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 do 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 The cycle of love and death will begin again. da 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 So that's Necromantic. I like it. Could you tell? Were you able to tell? I enjoy the film. Uh, you know, I don't have some elaborate story uh, the first time I saw this movie. I don't really remember the first time I saw it. I know I was a teenager, and I remember going, This fucking sucks. This <laughs> this is absolutely awful. I couldn't see anything. What the hell's going on? It's just all these fucking Germans mumbling around, and they fuck a corpse. It's weird. I never really had appreciation for it, and... Well, shit, I guess I have some stupid-ass story. Look at me. I said I didn't, and here we go. I saw it later on in life in my 20s, and I think that's when it kind of hit me. Like, this was kind of a romance... And it's, it's very much more clear with the sequel, Necromantic 2, which is a really, really terrific movie. And to be honest with you, I, I would have preferred doing Necromantic 2, but there's no fucking point doing it unless you talk about Necromantic because everything that happens in the sequel is because of what happens in the first movie. So hey, maybe one day, if you find people out there in Radioland enjoyed this Valentine's Day special, I'll come back and grace you all with Necromantic 2 because I also really like that movie. I like Jorg Budgarit in general. I think he makes really interesting films, and I think he makes, despite the ultra-low and no budget that he has always had for his films, I think they're really articulate. I keep using that word, but I think it's a strong one and something that shines a light onto his work because so many people can take a camera. Anyone can. You can go shoot anything, but to have a thoughtful and articulate product that, that you can tell effort was put into, that you can tell that it was thought out and that there were dreams and feelings that were were placed inside of the movements, you tend to have a deeper appreciation for it. Or at least I do. What makes the movie interesting is its exploitation, but it is a romance. It's a romance about sex and death. It's a romance about love and death. We don't villainize the leads because we are supposed to be experiencing their story. Is it extreme? Is it tasteless? No. Fucking Bridget Jones' diary is extreme and tasteless. That's just boorish. That's just no point, and it's filler, and it just serves absolutely no purpose. And to an extent, people could argue and say that Necromantic is the same thing, because Jorg's original motioning behind this is he just wanted to fuck with the censors. He wanted to do something damning to the German censors. But you have a thoughtful product, and God damn it, that's something that I can appreciate. And that brings us to the end of the Valentine's Day special. I hope you enjoyed this time you got to spend with me on Valentine's Day. If you've not seen Necromanic, I hope this is a doorway into allowing you to see your bootguerets art and some really weird shit. Until next week. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. Oh, and remember, death is certain. life is not. You've reached the end of Death by DVD's Love, Sex, and Death Valentine's Day special. We hope it was as good for you as it was for us. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. DVD, it's a statement.